standing or walking, seated or lying down, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. So I'd like to invite you to be standing. Keep in mind that it's all meditation, standing or seated, walking or lying down. In any behavior in which the intention is to see clearly and proceed on the basis of that seeing clearly, that makes it meditation. If you look in the dictionary, the Latin root means to put your attention purposely on something. So I'm going to tell you a story as we move a little bit, and I'll invite you to move with me, but I won't tell you what to do. You just watch, and you'll do it, and we'll meantime be moving, and the story will make the point, I hope. So once upon a time, a long time ago, I was a yoga teacher. And I was a yoga teacher in the College of Marin in the late afternoon for a number of years. I taught at four and again at five every weekday afternoon. And uh, people would say to me, isn't that a, really a hard time to teach? I mean, you have four children at home. That's the busiest time of day. And I thought to myself, ha-ha, it's a method to my madness, you know? <laughs> But it meant that I had to pick them all up at school in a timely way at 3 o'clock and then get them all to the swim team or the piano lesson or the dental appointment or the scout meeting or the swim coach or wherever it is that we had to be and then get myself to the College of Marin in time for that 4 o'clock class. And it happened, not infrequently, that we'd be in the car and depositing people in one place or another, and my eldest son would say to me at some point, I forgot my math homework at school. So annoyance would usually arise in my mind. Along with stories, I would think to myself, what's the matter with him? Every day we have the same story with the math homework. He has no respect for me. I don't have a life? What does he think? That only his life is important? I'm his mother. What kind of respect is that? When his father comes home, I'm going to tell his father, once again, he forgot the math homework. And maybe we're going to have to institute some sort of rules, like no television or demerits or whatever it was, that that's not nice. That, imagine that. I'm really upset about that. And then I would drop him off, and I'd be thinking as I went to the College of Marin, I'm all in a sweat about this. My mind is all upset. What kind of a business is that? He shouldn't do a thing like that. After all these years, he should have figured that out. What's the matter? So my husband is too lax in his discipline. He hasn't explained it. He gets to go to work at whatever time he wants in the day. No one ever says drive people with math homework. How come that it's the woman's job, the mother's job, to drive children with the math homework? It's a good thing that Gloria Steinem is doing what she's doing. And that women are going to have a better time in the future because they're going to be as respected as the men in what they're doing. He has no respect. Why would he do a thing like that? 
I'm going to see him later and we'll see. And then I would think to myself, this is a bad way to go to a yoga class to teach because <laughs> you want to come in, you want to be in a lovely mood because people are listening and you want to really project out calm and interest and enthusiasm or presence. Yeah, really, to be all over the place, this is no good. See, it's his fault that I'm all over the place. You know? But I'll fake it because what can I do? I'm here and I better fake it until I make it, you know, but, so I'll get in and never mind, they all know I'm seething by this point, but they don't have to know that. And so I'll continue just to start and I'll say to everybody, stand up and lean over, stretching, 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 feeling the stretch all the way through your arms and into your body and then coming up high and reaching up, and when his father comes home, I'm going to tell him, he can't believe it. He did it again with the homework, and once again, he forgot to bring the homework home. And it's a really, the other people, they remember. How come they remember? And only he doesn't remember. Must be because he's the eldest, and he got away with more. On the other hand, maybe it's because I was so overwhelmed. I shouldn't have had so many children so fast, but I really didn't think about that too much to begin with. But when his father comes home, I'm going to tell them. But in the meantime, bring yourself over to the side and really reach and reach and reach. Bring your arms up. Bring them over to the side. I wonder whether I shouldn't bring it up with the teacher about reminding him before he leaves school to bring the homework home. And bring your arms together and really feel the feeling down your arms and into your arms. And really feel the feeling as you turn your wrists. Feel the feeling feel a feeling and turn the wrist the other day, the other way and turn and turn and keep your attention in your body all the time, breathing in and up and out and down. And after about 10 minutes of that dual conversation and actually trying to have my arms and my body and my legs moving in the way that I was moving and talking about, trying to have really the feeling of my body doing that and my attention in my body and therefore focused, what would arise in my mind all of a sudden is a tremendous insight. This is, after all, insight meditation. And the insight that arose was, he's eight years old. He's eight years old. Eight-year-olds are not interested in their mother's career. Or whether or not she's late for work. That's just not one of the things that's on their plate. That's just not there. So wisdom prevails. And by the time I got home, I might say to him, Michael, tomorrow, try to remember about the math homework when I pick you up. And I will also try to remember to ask you when you get in the car, did you take the math homework? And what would always happen is that after five or 10 minutes of directed attention in the present moment, the stories and the commentary and the opinion pages and the comments about what I had or hadn't done all drop away. And what gets left is the truth. He's eight years old. And this is what eight-year-olds do. It's all practice. It's all practice. So I would like for you to make your way back to where you are sitting and sit down, feel your body, and we'll sit for a little while. Whatever you can remember of safe and 
content or joyful, whichever you like better, and strong and ease. Make those wishes into your practice, thinking of yourself, particular other people that you know, all the other people in the world, just the people around you. That's really fun because you can feel like you're sort of broadcasting out to the people around you. Think about. My friend Joseph Goldstein says he always thinks when he's sitting in a meditation hall that he is meditating on behalf of the people sitting in front of him so that it's not his own mind that he's working on. It's the freedom from suffering from the people in front of him and beside him. So we'll sit for a little while.
Somebody left a box of tissues on my uh, seat, maybe because somebody saw me wipe my nose on my blanket. (laughs) I don't even remember what made me cry, but something, you know. It's hard to keep keep track in a retreat, you know, and in a Dharma life, what what moves us and so the the uh, the Dharma is. Um, it's, it's more than we bargain for. We usually kind of inch our way into practice. And um, I know for me, it was, uh, yeah, very kind of like cautious tiptoeing my way into practice. And uh, it really, really began with, um, uh, you know, I, I, two apartment mates, old friends, um, were part of a young adult Thich Nhat Hanh Sangha. And um, they had just moved in and I kind of like, I wasn't looking for meditation, but I just sort of like, one night after work, like bounded into the door, into the place, and everyone was like just sitting around candles or something and talking about love and uh, meditating. And I sat down and, um, and the kind of motivation for, for, I, I didn't even know what I was doing. I was just trying to not be rude, basically. Like so, um, so I sit down, and um, you know, in my first first times practicing, like sometimes te- people who wind up being teachers, they sit down, and like something important happens, you know, or something like they get really concentrated fast, or they have some incredible insight or their heart opens and um, none of that happened for me. Like there was not even the faintest glimmer of hope, you know. But what grabbed me was just the sense of like, there's a lot happening here. And even though like I'm getting by okay, like I had no idea that there was all this happening in here. And so I kind of like very, I'm like a skeptical aversive type, you know, there's three types of this sort of greed, aversion, delusion types, you know, and uh, I'm pretty squarely in the aversive camp. and so I, I kind of like very gradually inched my way into practice. And I started by just, I would sit kind of like cross-legged with my knees like up by my ears 
and sit against my wall and I would set my watch timer for two minutes. And then I would just wait for my watch to ring. You know? <laughs> and so it's like <laughs> totally surreal that my life has been massively disrupted by this practice, you know. Like I had a whole plan to like not be here. (laughs) (laughs) And we kind of like inch our way in and we in a sense can never give um, uh, we, we can never sign off on all the changes that may be precipitated in our hearts and minds. It's like we, we kind of inch our way into Dharma practice very much like the approaches, you know, I, I, I have these kind of problems and I, I, I'm seeking meditation and mindfulness and the, the Buddhist path maybe as a way of addressing those problems and then I'll be, re- I'll return to my life without the problems or with fewer problems. But um, Dharma practice won't stay confined, it won't stay like compartmentalized in our life. And if we let it, it kind of like wants to uh, to colonize all corners of the heart and mind. And so um, there's this real aspect of like not knowing what this practice will do to us and not knowing what um, it will ask us to let go of and not knowing how transfigured our life may seem. But there is a sense of, uh, no, this is actually more than a kind of technique to address the problems. It actually calls into question the very idea of who we are and what is a problem and where we're going. And so it just starts to like creep into different corners of our life. And the effect is that, that our life becomes more and more um, integrated and transparent. It becomes... Um, yeah, it's like, it's like we really are actually blessing the entirety of our, of our past with the kind of wisdom and uh, love that we develop. And there is this like growing sense of, um, of wholeness. And... Uh, we both come to care like very deeply about our, uh, about our life, but there's this other perspective that is like very spacious too.
So I would say the poignancy of our suffering and the suffering of other beings, that becomes more dramatic, you know. Like um, we, we sort of stop seeing life in terms of uh, good and bad and right and wrong in the same way. And we m- more actually are guided by the distinction of suffering and freedom from suffering. And the Buddha said like that's, that's maybe the most useful distinction. That's a helpful way actually to understand and proceed in our life. So there's this kind of, yeah, this very like beautiful kind of self-care that's diff- not self-absorption, but this like we care for ourself, for our, for our own being, uh, not because we're me, but because we're someone. Just like a certain appreciation of the, the kind of the innocence of our longing to be at peace like really actually start to sense the the innocence of the longing and at the, so in this way we become like big but then there's this other side that's like i feel i really feel the pull of it in these times in this political moment and it's a kind of perspective of um of of acknowledging you know that that my lifetime it feels like the universe revolves around my life and this moment in time yeah like that's just naturally how it can kind of feel and yet um i think often about you know how much time existed before we were alive and how much time will exist after we die. And if you like add those two up, it's like almost exactly as much time as there is, you know. And yet, uh, here we are, right? Like, kind of remarkably, here we are. This is our life. But the vastness of that and the necessity of actually thinking about many generations beyond our lifetime, our ethical obligations to generations beyond our lifetime, for the kind of the bodhisattva vow, the wish to alleviate suffering, for this actually, for, for this, uh, for, for not to be working merely for this life. That's, that's this other like very important uh, piece. And so, 
you know, sometimes I, I feel like, um, actually it's, it's something that, uh, that Jack uh, shared, said, um, and it's from, it's from a, like a, a Polish rabbi from the 1800s and um, I was known for, for his wisdom. And he said uh, something like, like in, everyone should, should uh, carry two pieces of paper, one in each pocket. And in the left pocket, the paper says, uh, the world was created for me. And in the right pocket, the paper says, I am but dust and ash. And the secret of living, of wisdom, is knowing when to reach into the left or right pocket. And there's something about this kind of moment in global time and um, uh, and the this moment in uh, ecolo- this ecological moment where I feel compelled to think about my spiritual life in a multi-generational way. And um, to begin to, I, I think for me, to begin to actually come to deeper terms with my own uh, mortality I was, I was in, uh, just like walking in a grocery store and, um, and I didn't, it was not in a rush and it was kind of like a very easy kind of mind. And, and just in a moment, there was this sense of like, if I weren't afraid to die, life would be radically open. And maybe you can get a kind of like intuitive hit of that. Like what it, if we, because for me, it feels like the, the fears around mortality are kind of like the, the kind of the culmination of all fears. That's where it all converges, you know? And to even be a little bit uh, less afraid, which is, I think, a real endeavor to live in such a way as to become less afraid. But that, that catalyzes like so much openness and the sense of, uh, of my life belonging to me, that, it changes that. It feels like, yeah, actually Shanti Deva said, um, said, uh, he's like addressing his own mind and said, mind, please understand you don't belong to me. And there are different ways of hearing that, but the way I heard it was like, uh, it belongs to the welfare of all beings.
So we, we try to live in a way, and uh, the Dharma supports this, such that our, our life actually feels uh, complete. And that means um, that means living in um, a way that we're un, unashamed yeah, to be to do our best, even though of course we fail, uh, but to do our best to live in alignment with our own deepest values. and to cultivate wisdom and clarity. Life starts to feel uh, more and more complete. And I can say, you know, um, I want to keep living. I, I don't have, I was, cleaning windows on a roof recently, and uh, I'm definitely still afraid to die. You know? <laughs> um, uh, but um, yeah, the Dharma has kind of like spread out um, into, into the, the kind of uh, the bones of my life such that I, I, I actually do feel like my life is is complete. Like I've lived, uh, I've lived enough. The gift, the blessings of uh, of love, uh, of being in you know spaces like this, in moments like this. It's enough. More than I could ask for. Maybe you wanted to say something else because it was exactly, did you finish that last thought? Uh, I I never know when I finish the last thought. I don't know. (laughs) So maybe you could say something on that point that because what you just said is a very important segue into an awareness that I had a long time ago uh, when I first started, as you did the practice. The practice meant going to a retreat or sitting down at home in a certain specified time. And uh, so there were two distinct kinds of things. And then I discovered that there was a certain point, and I can't tell you when it happened, when something happened, and it was not a tremendous experience of um, ecstasy or bliss or a new insight, because uh, things happen from time to time, and you really say, wow, I see that, or wow, look at this. But there was a certain time that I realized that what had really shifted was my view and how I saw things so that uh, what it, it didn't become that I was going to practice over here to get to some place that I didn't quite get what it was, enlightenment or what. But I think what shifted is 
some understanding of, it's very simple, Sylvia, that either we're confused or we're not confused. And that, so that there weren't two realms, there's only one realm. There's a realm where I'm sitting on a Zafu or at a retreat center or sitting my, wherever I'm sitting, where I might suddenly have an understanding, but it became that my whole life became what I was looking for as a, uh, there wasn't anything that didn't seem to me to be an explication of Dharma and in, uh, in accord with what I had come to understand. There was a, uh, one, at least one of the questions that we got that said, um, you mentioned that, I, maybe I said or you said I'm not enlightened, but uh, I actually have, um, and I did tell you that story about the people who said when the Buddha was teaching, I got it, I got it, or he said, look at him over there, he's got it, he's got it. And the idea and their hearts through not clinging were liberated from taints. And I said, you know, there are times when my heart is liberated from taints. And then it isn't again. That the story that I told you um, about Michael and the moment where I realize he's eight years old. It doesn't matter to him. It's fine. My, my flurry of the moment which was caused by a bunch of habitual thoughts that I'll be late for class, they won't think well of me, I'll teach in a sloppy way. Whatever was all my, the thoughts attendant on that moment preclude what's the, really the truth is he's eight years old. And to be annoyed at an eight-year-old for not recognizing my, va- that's all a story. And that to the degree that I see that if I live my life just with clarity, without editorials, then I'm really living an enlightened life. And in between, in the moments that I've got it, I've got it. And (laughs) in the moments that I don't have it, I get confused and tell stories. And the confusion, I don't know if I want to say right ahead, all the confusion is from editorials or all of the feeling, you know, unenlightened and I didn't do very well. in the moment, uh, this morning, I said, so I'm maybe walking or riding along, and I'm starting to hitch, to hatch some sort of uh, revenge fantasy. And there's a moment that says, what are you doing? So don't do that. This is painful. That's an enlightened moment. And in that moment, it becomes free of taints because there's clarity of vision. My friend that I said, says to her partner, I'm in a realm. And he says, yeah, you're right. I'm also in a realm. Let's get out of the realm. Oh, outside of the realm, I really love you. That when we have moments of clarity about what's important and we feel this is, this is important, then we can do anything, you know, that... Uh, and not be frightened about it. And so somebody asked in one of the other questions about... Um, so I don't, I actually, the end of that sentence is, I don't have such a confidence in enlightenment. I have a confidence in enlightened moments and enlightened periods where I suddenly think this is, you know. 
And most of the stories that I tell, I realize this after a while, that most of the stories that I tell, people say, oh, tell a story about this, tell a story about that. They all have the same punchline. And the, the punchline is always more or less a version of was blind, but now I see. The mind gets all confused, makes ridiculous confu- conclusions, makes plans that are not helpful, and then all of a sudden, you, it's a, what are you doing? So, ah, and all of a sudden, you see. This is not, I don't feel in love with life. I'm not glad to be here. I'm not celebrating. To be able to hold a clear vision all the time, clear enough, you know what, I, I, I think I'd also like to say that because I've been talking about the clarity of vision, particularly um, Matthew talked this morning, so, so in a way that was touching to me about how upsetting it is to see people that were uh, icons or teachers that we've had in the Dharma world, in other worlds, where they seem to be so competent in their ability to discuss Dharma or these other worlds for people in other worlds, and fundamentally to find that their heart is not well at all and that they don't have a vision that includes the heart. That that particular part that seems so crucial, I think, to both of us, that when, the, when you see clearly, one responds out of kindness and compassion. If somehow one has been um, primed out of kindness and compassion, it takes some talking to, to really answer that. Not everybody has, who has the analytic skill to say this is how the mind works has the heart skill to affect it. I think we were saying that this morning. But to be able to see that and say, I get that, but I don't need to be, spend a lot of time being disappointed at that. I'm sorry it's not true. I used to say when the mind is clear, the heart is open. It was a lovely thing to say because I could say all kinds of things like I can say the whole Dharma in 15 words when the mind is clear heart is open. Nine words, the whole Dharma, nine words. I thought that was so clever. Until I began to think about that very thing, about the mind could be very clear. Somebody said to me, how about the people in uh, gambling casinos? Their mind is clear, it's quiet, they have a high degree of focus, they can memorize all the cards, Their motive is not wonderful. So it counts also motive and intention. How about the people who climb up second story burglars? It goes in the second story, goes in, opens the safe quietly, carefully. They are on high alert. Mind is steady, very alert, keenly. Motive is a big, really important part of it. And the whole discussion about what makes motive? What makes us brokenhearted? When you started, Matthew, I love that, with the fact that your nose wasn't running, you were crying, you know, yeah. that, uh, that um, Punja burst into tears. When our heart is available, it means that, uh, and everybody here, I'm sure, has had that, 
that you're moved by something human that's the touchingest. I cry when I see um, uh, Cub Scouts uh, raising the flag at a swim meet. They're so earnest about it, you know? <laughs> they're so earnest about it. They're so young and so earnest. And not everybody gets that, but I do. You know? There are touching things about purity and about loveliness to be able to see and respond to and say that the nature of the human heart is we could be lovely. And for whatever reasons... So there's one other thing that I want to go back to talk about and bring into the conversation, which pertains to some of these questions. Somebody asked. Uh, can, I, can I jump in yes. on something? Yeah. So just the, this um, this question that you started with about, uh, and, and it, it says like um, something like, is there hope for me uh, to think that one day I, I might be enlightened, and um, um, I just want to just say a couple things about that. Um, this is a this is a big topic, uh, but um, uh, one piece is that we sh- we can recognize that um, uh, we're almost always thinking about enlightenment from the perspective of I amness, from the perspective of self, where enlightenment is like something added to me. It's like here I am, this like defective human being, and then I'm gonna like get something, and it's gonna be like, like enlightenment is like this accoutrement of self, yeah? And it's, we actually just imagine it being like some addition, you know, and, um, uh, but in a sense, like every thought about enlightenment as, as addition is, is diluted. Um, and, I will say like that that um, there's a difference between uh, suffering very little and having uh, a, a moment or hour or day or maybe a life where the suffering goes from somewhere to zero. Like there is such a thing as the f- suffering completely flatlining. And the sense that it's like the suffering that we became acclimatized to, the like low rumbling of, of dissatisfaction that feels actually, you know, uh, is so ubiquitous that we don't notice it. Uh, when that actually shuts off, it is like a kind of, um, diesel engine right outside your head cutting off finally. And that experience um, I think changes people. 
Now, I don't know, I, I, I have some skepticism that we've drawn adequate maps of spiritual evolution. That each tradition, the kind of Tibetan tradition, within the Tibetan traditions, different traditions, within the insight tradition, you know, in Zen, and you know, like, okay, there are different maps of how people describe like awakening. And my sense is that those maps are actually quite primitive and need the kind of like integrative, uh, cross-disciplinary work. Um, Because, yeah, suffering is really an interdisciplinary problem, you know? And so we actually bring all different kinds of resources to it. The Dharma is, is, it's sort of most romantic to say it's always sufficient. It's the one, you know, necessary and sufficient cause of deep well-being. But it's complicated. It's complicated. I've come to be much more humble about, uh, about, um, the kind of different pieces we need to support our well-being. And there are certain kinds of suffering that I don't feel like are, are actually addressed by anything but deep insight. This is, these are all like um, empirical claims. They're we can assess this. And I think if, um, uh, you know, science may have a, an important role in actually helping us develop clearer maps of, um, of freedom. Yeah. You know, on that point, this is a, I, I would like to add just on this point that I think that alongside of perhaps very deep insight. I'm thinking really of the growing interest in the development of the paramis as being what will be in the end, not only transformative because people who are um, habituated to behaving in all of those ways behave in a way that makes for a more harmonious world aside from the harmonious outside world, it also, they, it also cultivates a mind of freedom. The, if we go back to, I think earlier you said something about, but we could say it in a, in a lot of ways, that the mind who ha- that has to have its own way is really suffering. You know, the, you know, the second noble truth is it, the imperative to have things other than what they are is suffering. To be able to say, it's like this, this is what's happening. What can I do now? Is really the essence of freedom. I was thinking about that, that list of um, the virtues of the heart, and I was thinking about uh, uh, renunciation, for instance, uh, which often we think about as giving up stuff. Uh, 
And I was thinking about reading some years ago, Mother Teresa is dead now, but uh, somewhere near the end of her life, the, uh, her order, the Sisters of Charity of, uh, 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 in India, of uh, nuns dedicated to working with the poorest of the poor at the end of their lives and taking care of them into their, through their dying, uh, she said, I need to retire. I'm old and I'm tired and I'm stepping down as abbot, abbess. And they said, okay, you can do that. And then they had a vote for a new abbess and they voted for her. <laughs> so they told her, we voted and you're it. And apparently she said, okay. That is a huge renounce. I felt like doing that. But it won't. It's not happening that way. It's happening this way. It isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. The ability to be able to say that and not be about it, but say, you know, that's what people want for the benefit. Okay. It's, 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 um, I wouldn't say it's the path of least resistance. It's the path of least suffering. Okay. I think, you know, again, my friends that are starting to die at a slightly more than they used to are by and large saying, this isn't what I wanted, but it's happening. And all the work of, uh, that now is so available, Frank Ostaseski's hospice book, that people are able to say, well, I, uh, sorry about the dying, but that's what happens. Um, I had a friend a long, long time ago, as I just began to practice, who uh, I knew about him. We weren't very close friends, but uh, he was in his 40s and in vigorous health and an athlete, and he had a wonderful profession and a family. And he uh, unusually contract developed breast cancer, which is a very strange thing to have in men. And this is... 40 years ago, maybe 50, and there weren't treatments for it, and he died. And he wrote a, a letter to be sent to all of his friends after his death, and in the letter thanking them for friendship and all of that, and talking about he said, I enjoyed my life very much. And he said, I never wanted... I would have wanted more, but I never wanted other. I think to myself, that is brilliant. I mean, that's a really, and um, I didn't know, he didn't know anything about Dharma. I don't know that he had anything with Buddhism. But the essence of not wanting other is really the key. And we spend so much time wanting other, like to have a little more of this, less of this, da 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 Whatever, we tinker. <laughs> Even when it's good, we say, this would really be good if I had some hot sauce on it. You know, that, you know we just do that. You know, that we are, we are we're pleasure-seeking animals, and if we can make it a little better, a little better, a little better. It's not to say that making a little better isn't, isn't okay. Um, 
I remember hearing that uh, St. Francis, uh, Francis of Assisi used to, uh, before his meal, take some ashes from the fireplace and throw it on the food lest he become too um, enslaved by desire for food. I actually thought that was carrying it a little far. That, you know, there are, there are things that are actually pleasurable. And my own take is that when something is pleasurable, I really want to say, this is pleasurable. This is lovely. Relax, enjoy this. I remember saying to one of my teachers early on about something. I guess when I had started my metta practice and I was... Uh, I had been really schooled for 10 years in, you know, meet the moment, experience it, and don't hold on to it, don't hold on to it, don't hold on to it. I started to do intensely the practice that we started to do together this morning, invocations for the well-being of this one and this one and this one and this one. So I'm going to tell you about invocations in general just in a minute, but to finish this thought, I right away began to feel really good because as the attention becomes more and more concentrated and focused, your body changes, your heart rate slows down, your blood pressure goes down, you feel warmer, your extremities are warm, you can feel the energy in your body, you feel a little bit floating. It's just all, all manner of lovely feelings. And that's really, it's fantastic, especially a lot of sitting is it hurts me here and it hurts me there and I'm remembering this terrible thought. So really, but to sit and really feel not only okay but wonderful. So I'd come to see my teacher and I'd say, you know, a beautiful state arose in me and I was just so filled with a, a sublime rapture in my body. But I'm not holding on to it because I knew you're not supposed to grasp. Said, but I'm not holding on to it. He said, why not? <laughs> he said, first of all, you hold on to it. it. It won't last anyway, you know. But why not enjoy it while it's there? I mean, there isn't any reason to say, well, forget about that. That's okay. That's okay. You know, bring on the hard stuff. That really, to really recognize this is a moment of sublime comfort. And it's wonderful for the mind and the body and the neurology to rest in that and learn. This is a possibility for human beings while they're alive, without drugs, without other kinds of things, without chemicals. If, I, if we can do that when we get old, I'm, I'm hopeful into, into the end, into the dying to be able to do that. Really what I wanted to say about that, uh, this whole thing, is really the answer is you started it about, it's about letting go. But letting go of having it your way. Because there isn't actually, the profound vision, the profound understanding, is there isn't a your whose way it should be. But that's such a complicated thing for just a weekend. You want to talk about there isn't a your? Not right now. <laughs> I don't need that, so we'll just move on. <laughs> Maybe walk. Huh? You want to walk? Um, we need to walk in 15 minutes oh. so that... Uh, there was one more thing I was going to say. I'll say it, and then we'll walk. Maybe in 10 minutes. 
can you sit another 10 minutes? Are you too tired of sitting? Are you okay? This ties up uh, the weekend of things because there's certain fundamental Dharma things that I really always like to say because they're always valuable. Last night when I said the Buddha, when he had his realization, he said, the third noble truth is peace is possible in this very life, with this very body, with this very circumstances, whatever it is. And my friend Martha was dying the last day of her life. I was in between her being in a coma. She would awake and talk to me a little bit. And we were talking about something. And all of a sudden, and she's in a bed, of course, and I'm standing right there. All of a sudden, she said something that was totally like out in left field. You know, when you're just about to die, you suddenly say something that doesn't make any sense at all. And so she was in the middle of saying that, and she said, oh, I'm so sorry. I said, what? She said, I don't think I'm making sense. I said, sweetheart, you know, this is how it is at this point. You're not supposed to make a lot of sense. Don't worry about it. And she said, but I don't want to be boring to you. (laughs) And then I, I look at her, and we both realize, as you just did, that she's about to die. Boring is the least of her problematic situations at that point. And we both looked at each other, we both got it, and we both laughed. And she was on the brink, really, of dying. And I was on the brink of losing her. But we can laugh in that moment because it's so clear. What are we? It's so odd. That ego till the last minute, you know, I don't want to be boring you. We are always catching up and saying, oh, it's like that. What I wanted to say is that peace is possible. Like in that moment, we were both happy and we knew we loved each other. And she died and I went on. And But up to the end, it's possible to connect with love. I have very much enjoyed how much you've said love today. And every once in a while, I tried with substituting forgiveness for love, which goes, and... Um, Compassion for love, which works also. The same sentence. Mm. I hear you say that, and then I run it through the other way. Mm. So that's a whole other thing we could talk about mm. sometime. But The other last thing that I want to say is the third noble truth is peace is possible. The fourth is the path. The path is those three wise ways to behave, three ways of cultivating uh, the capacity of seeing clearly how the mind is and actually making choices. The One of those three is wise effort, and it's a very particular effort of noticing when, the, when there are wholesome states in the mind and, in fact, cultivating them. And noticing when there are unwholesome states like revenge or greed or envy in the mind and saying, oh, sweetheart, Look what's here. You're in pain. I do that to myself anyway. Instead of saying, oh, this is a terrible, unwholesome thought, I should get rid of it. I say to myself, sweetheart, you're in pain. Relax. Because all of those are indications of pain. If I get jealous or envious or wrathful or even annoyed, I'm in pain about something. And the most, the most, sensible thing, the most immediate thing, the most instinctive, intuitive thing to do 
is to take care of myself. If somebody else came up and said, I'm in pain, I'd say, sweetheart, relax, take a breath, you'll be all right. Why can't I do that on myself? Say, sweetheart, relax, you're in pain. Take a breath, you'll be all right. And the thought or the feeling or the mood goes out of my mind. Because it is an indication of pain. I actually think that particular part of the Eightfold Path maybe is the most important part. The awareness, every time we're about to act or think or do something, we're about to do anything, speak or act or plan, is this leading to a wholesome state or not? That, I think, is like the, a very, very key piece. And it depends, actually, on wisdom, which is part of the last two pieces. It depends on the wisdom of knowing that to have a, a motive that's rooted in um, compassion and forgiveness and love is to be um, at peace. And if I know that, then I am... Um, supported in my desire to say, sweetheart, don't do that. No. <laughs> Sometimes in the most ridiculous way, something happens, somebody says something, and, I, and it just bothers a little bit. And I have the thought, I could just call, I call my husband, Tom, I can't believe what happened. Well, whatever, I call one of my children, they're all adults and they're all my friends. Tell them, da, da, da. Then I think you don't have to do that. Don't do it. Don't do it. That is all day long Dharma practice. You see the mind about to do something that's acting on a motive that's less than wholesome. And say to yourself, you don't have to do that. Don't do that. That is a renunciation at the same time. It's also determination at the same time. Not to give you the idea that I'm so entirely good at all of it, but I am entirely believing that it is the path to a happy life and to peace. That I believe. And somebody sent a note that says, do you have to do the Eightfold Path sequentially? One step, and then the next, and then the next. Um, no. You do them all at the same time because they're all act actually permutations and combinations of the same thing. You can't do one without the other if you think about it. If we had way more time, if we had another whole day, we would spend time in little dyads talking about how is wise speech connected to wise understanding? How does wise aspiration affect something? And we'd see that they're actually not this step, this step, this step, this step. They were all, all the steps. I remember that I, I wrote once that the path does not go from here to there. It's actually, it's, it, it's a circle. It goes around and around and around. So I thought, I think instead of calling it the Eightfold Path, we should call it the Eightfold Circle because it keeps circling around and picking up all the other path pieces. Then I thought, well, actually... They're really all connected to each other, not this one to the next one to the next one. So I have to mash the circle together and have the eightfold dot. So, they, but the, the Buddha taught the four good ideas and the eightfold dot. So, you 
now I think we should walk. <laughs> I don't know, it's not a holy enough or exalted enough point to stop. I think it's good. <laughs> All right. What's going to happen now is we're going to move in a certain way. Uh, uh, and uh, I'll tell you the instructions about that. And that at the end of the, uh, at uh, 4.30, at 4.25, a bell will ring and everybody will move to their place and sit down. And then we'll shift into the next piece. The retreat does not end until 11 o'clock tomorrow morning. This is just an administrative piece of working things out. It's such a rare time that we can get to actually be here now, now, every minute of it. It all counts. So the uh, movement part that I'd like you to do is I'd like you to walk counterclockwise in this room, counterclockwise in the foyer, and counterclockwise upstairs. Um, not back and forth as you previously had instructions, but counterclockwise. So you get to look at people around the circle. Just to get used to looking at people in the face. And watch what your mind does as you look. And try to be in touch with wishing well to everyone that you see. Everyone is in a category of the person I see all the time on my floor, the person I didn't notice till today, the person who this, the person who that, the person I came with who I love, I can't wait to talk to them. Everybody's in a different category and wishing them well. The same thing, wishing well, be well, be well, be well, be well, be well. Be well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.